0: Tone 2.0, an interview with Dr. Jamie Rhodes from East Carolina University and a composer profile on Claudio Monteverdi. This is Early Music Monday. All right, so I know we already had an episode on tone, uh, a little segment before our interview with Dr. Crane a couple episodes ago. But it's such an important topic to me because, as is mentioned in the first episode, that when I was at BYU-Idaho, I struggled with singing a lot, and I failed voice lessons for my recital. And I just it was like painful, like singing was just like not fun. And then all of a sudden when I learned how to do it, it totally changed and I was like, this is why people love singing. And so because of that, it's become kind of a crusade of mine to make sure that my students, you know, I have a lot of deficiencies as an educator and as a conductor, but one thing is making sure that I'm always talking about tone all the time and making sure they're pursuing healthy production and you know a clean tone that is useful and beautiful and that they're not building any bad habits like I was. And sometimes all we need as the conductor is a paradigm shift. I think it's really interesting that so many conductors are primarily keyboardists of one kind or another, yet the instrument that we're directing and conducting is the voice not the keyboard now some of the best choral conductors that I know are keyboardists and they're brilliant musicians but to have a really deep thorough inside and out upside down backwards left and right understanding of the voice is more crucial than ever And we don't have to be, just like Dr. Crane said in the interview with him, we don't have to be Pavarotti to be able to instruct it. But the better we understand our voice and the actual mechanical things that we're doing, the better we'll be able to teach that to someone else. And sometimes, like I said, it only takes just a small paradigm shift for us to understand something that we've been doing wrong or incorrectly, or words we've been using that have created bad habits and false impressions. So here's an example. We might say, hey, create space. Feel that space in the back of your throat. When I say feel that space in the back of the throat, how are they supposed to feel empty space? Well, they put their tongue back there and feel the throat with the back of their tongue. So then, all of a sudden, the tube, as we'll hear Dr. Rhodes call it, of our throat, the air, the windpipe becomes plugged with the tongue when that wasn't really what we were getting after so when we make a small paradigm shift in our own voice techniques like, oh okay what am I actually doing okay, I'm just opening the throat like that and it feels open instead of trying to feel for it and understanding maybe different words to use so I'm going to be done now um Talking about tone, there's not much more. I don't want to mess anything up. And so we're just going to listen to Dr. Rhodes teach us. And when she talks about singing different styles, we'll hear how, and we can think of some ways that we can apply these things into singing early music. Because the foundational principles are the exact same, no matter what style we're singing in. Okay. Okay. We are joined now by Dr. Jamie Rhodes, voice instructor extraordinaire, and I would love to start the interview with just hearing your story of when you first started being interested in singing to where you are now, because I think it's so fascinating.
1: Well, I don't know how fascinating it is and I'll try to not make it the longest story in the history of the world. I'll give you as close to the Cliff Notes version as possible. I was not really given the option to be interested or not interested in singing. I was gifted and blessed to be born into a family that they're all musicians um, in some capacity. Now they're not trained musicians. They're Um, Some of them are just completely freakazoid human beings who can legitimately just pick up any instrument and play it having never seen it before. And that is just amazing. I was not gifted that superpower. Um, But I was born into a family that sang and played instruments and did all kinds of stuff that wasn't the career path they had chosen. But that's something that I was surrounded by when I was a young kid. And We were really active in church and again I wasn't given the option like you weren't asked you were just thrown up there and they said sing, and you said okay. Um, And so I was doing all kinds of stuff um, with my ear from a really young age like I was singing harmonies and picking out things on the piano from the time I could reach the keyboard. Um, and so without realizing what was happening, I was kind of nurtured in a musical environment and most of my musical activity was, um, mainly at church. Sure. And then uh, I grew up in a super rural area in North Carolina where, um, the public school system is not known for, um, super extraordinary arts programs. We had them um, and I had wonderful teachers in that those people were really committed to making sure those programs um, continue to sustain and that they were something that students were interested in and that the students in our area had the opportunities, uh, but they weren't super strong programs, uh, a lot of which had to do just with um, budget and the area and that kind of thing. Um, And so I didn't I had general music stuff at school. But once I got into high school where there was an actual like choral program, I got really involved in the choirs and I mostly oddly played the piano. Um, Like I sang a little bit in the choirs, but for the most part, I was the pianist for like, two of the four ensembles kind of throughout my four years there. And um we would do like an all-county choir which is like the district's choir and instead of singing i would always play because by that point i had reached a point where um i had pretty decent piano chops and i had grown up in a church where everybody played by ear anyways and so um I could pretty much play whatever they threw in front of me um and so I did that a lot through high school and honestly the only time I really got to sing outside of what I was doing at church and I sang a lot at church Mm. um, but as far as school was concerned uh the only time I got to sing is when we went to like all-state choir or uh, like the North Carolina Honors Chorus or whatever, where a handful of select people from the program were allowed to go and participate in something bigger. I was able to do those things. I didn't sing very much but somewhere near the end of my high school time, when they start talking to you about what you're going to do with your life, I'll be real honest and say, I had no idea. I just had pretty strict instructions from my parents to get a scholarship. <laughs> like, And I didn't know sure. what I was going to do. Yeah. It was like, get a scholarship. And I was always, I always had pretty decent grades. And so I'm pretty sure um, my parents expected some kind of huge lucrative um, adventure in, you know, the medical field or the law field or, you know, something that right. is high profile in that capacity. Right. Uh, and somewhere in there, my guidance counselor said, well, there's this scholarship for people who want to be teachers that North Carolina offers. And if you go to school and get a degree in education, Um, they'll pay for your school as long as you teach in the public schools of North Carolina after you're done. And I was like, that sounds good. And she was like, you know, you're really smart. Like I think you make a good teacher. And I was like, well, can I teach music like my chorus teacher does? And she was like, yeah. I was like, well, then that sounds good. That's what I'll do. Um, And my poor parents (laughs) was like, guess what? (laughs) I think I want to be a music teacher because at that point I I knew I liked two things. I liked dogs and, and music. And I decided not to go to veterinary route because I thought, well, you know, you have to deal with sick dogs and I didn't want to do sick dogs. Um, But I knew I would be miserable if I didn't do music. And so the only thing I knew coming from a little rural area was that I could go to school and study to be a music teacher. So that's what I did on this particular scholarship. And I had never taken a voice lesson until my first year in college. I'd never heard an opera, I'd never really seen classical or heard of or seen classical singing outside of the like, you know, um, uh, like Sesame Street stereotypes and you know, with the little orange that sings Carmen with the eyelashes,
0: right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: I had no concept of it. And most of the music that I had sung in my choir experience, except for when I had done these district things or state things, had been mostly pop music. Like I just did not have a background in a lot of classical music, especially in the vocal realm. I had more pianistically than I did in the vocal realm. Sure. So I had my very first voice lesson when I got to college and I had no idea what was going on. And I just tried to, to sing in a classical way and vibrate. And that's pretty much what I did for four years. I tried to sing classically and vibrate. Um, and I was a complete choir nerd. I sang in every choir they would let me sing in. And it didn't take long during my college experience before I started to kind of like, my brain started to divide a little bit. Sure. Um, I Somebody put a costume on me and threw me on stage and I was like, oh, well, this singing thing's kind of fun. I, I like the performing part of it. And I actually can sort of make a classical sound. Don't know how I'm doing it, but woot. <laughs> um, and I was also a massive choir nerd. Like, I mean, I had come out of the choral program. I'd gone into the world where my plan was to become a choral conductor. And so I sang in like every choir they would let me sing in. And that was pretty much my college experience in undergrad. I graduated with a music education degree. um, And I actually pushed Paul's on going into the education field and did a master's degree. Uh, in vocal performance, because in my brain, when I finished my ed degree, not only was I not quite done with the performing thing, and I was just kind of getting bitten by the whole, like, I want to sing and perform. yeah. Uh, but I felt um, like I could write a solid lesson plan. And I felt like I could do a lot of stuff on paper really well when it came to educating people. But one of the things I found in my student teaching experience was that in the curriculum of the music education degree, I had learned a lot of stuff, but what I hadn't quite mastered yet was the singing thing. And I there hadn't even been room in my degree program for the diction's. And right. I learned that when they threw me into a, a student teaching situation, and my my supervising teacher was like, "Here, won't you teach them this? You can teach them this piece." And I thought, "That's great." I never took French diction. Yeah. I don't know how to teach direton. like. Right, with, you know, Morton Lordson that was like a right, big right, thing right. I was teaching back in the day. Um, but I was like, I don't, I can't even say these words yet. Like, I don't think I'm done. Right. I don't think I can teach people to do this because I don't think I know how to really do it yet. So, I did a master's degree in performance and then came back and taught high school mm. and loved it. Um, loved the students, loved being in the choral environment, was planning to stay there at least for a period of time. Um, and after being in the public schools for a very short period of time, a opportunity to do my doctorate was thrown onto my lap and it was pretty much, um, a situation with a program that's Louisiana state university down in Baton Rouge, um, with performance opportunities and amazing teachers and coaches that I couldn't really turn down, um, and the financial offer for me was, again, something that I couldn't really turn down. It was like, OK, well, if I'm going to get this doctorate, I should do it. So I launched into my doctorate and I made the decision on a whim to supplement my performance degree with a degree in uh, or with a um a secondary focus in pedagogy uh, and voice science. And there is a woman down at uh, Louisiana state who is a brilliant teacher. Um, And you Google her and you're going to find all kinds of things about her. Her name is Lorraine Sims and she was my pedagogy mentor down there. Um, And she is just a completely solid pedagogue and an all around excellent human being. Um, And I had a lot of performance opportunities, which kind of fed that performing desire. And part of my uh, assistantship financial package was to teach. So I taught lots of classroom classes as a doctoral student. I also maintained an applied studio where I was actively teaching undergrads. And so I was really kind of getting my feet wet with the whole teaching voice thing. And this, the voice science and pedagogy decision turned out to be just Jesus pointing me in the direction that I was always supposed to go because all of a sudden I was immersed in this world of answering questions that I didn't really know I had and that I definitely did not know had actual solid answers to them until I got into the, that, uh, doctorate, a lot of singing for me, As much as I loved it and as much as I knew I had to make my life into in it in some capacity, um, there was a lot of unanswered questions for me. And the way I handled my own voice even was a lot of cross your fingers and hope. (laughs) to recreate the same sensation right without really understanding how I was doing it until I got into Lorraine Sims pedagogy program and started throwing that information into my head Mm -hmm. and I was studying with um a wonderful uh teacher down there Lori Beatty who was quite an excellent technician um and really sort of helped me put my own instrument together um Mm -hmm. and I was doing those two things for my own brain and my own world at the same time that I was cutting my teeth teaching applied voice and it was like a conglomeration of like all the best possible things that can happen to somebody who's going to go forward and teach. And so that's how that happened.
0: And I think so many people can relate to what you just, what you said that was so profound is how am I going to teach this when I don't even understand what I'm doing myself and I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope. I think like 95% of choir teachers,
1: right. Including my teachers, not just choir teachers. True. Voice teachers, singers that walk out onto the stage. I can remember being in my twenties and being in these young artist programs and singing these compramario roles on the stages of these regional houses that were awesome. And I was on stage with some amazing artists and I just remember looking at them going, You seem so solid in this. How are you this solid? Like you're just like a machine in a beautiful, artistic, humanistic way, right? Um, And I remember thinking, like, I would wake up sometimes and be like, you are a huge fraud. How did you get here? Like, you don't even know how you're doing this. Like, sometimes I would think I almost figured it out. And then it would be like, I don't even know how I'm making this sound. And when it was right, and came flying out of my face, I had no idea why, but I was grateful. And when it didn't, I was like, i 'm not even- I mean I can guess at some things I did wrong, but I still don 't know how to ensure that that doesn 't happen again yeah and then I got thrown into this world where I was getting three very different kinds of information all working towards the same end. I was being forced to listen to singers who were in my charge figure out what they were doing wrong and explain to them how to do it better and yeah. there 's nothing that teaches you how to sing more than teaching somebody else yeah like sure. um And I was getting all the basic scientific information explained by somebody who was a wonderful pedagogue herself. And then I had somebody standing in front of me when I was in the student mentality who was saying, no, Jamie, you're doing this. Look in the mirror. You know that that doesn't work. Listen to what's happening with me. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, all these things work together for good. And all of a sudden the science was answering questions in my teaching and in my singing. And it kind of did that.
0: That's awesome. So to ask a question then, if you had to pick like two or three big light bulb moments during that time that helped you understand your voice better,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what do you think are some of those most significant, and you can be super specific, like technical things that you encountered?
1: Uh, well, the f- first kind of one that isn't really an overarching principle and then I'll kind of back up to the more overarching principles that actually kind of sure. came later. Sure. Um, the first one that my teacher um, down at LSU in our first one of our first few lessons I sang um, I was singing this big mezzo Rossini aria. Uh, it's called Cru sorte from l'italiana and I had always struggled as you always want to with the aria that you start with with the very first note. Uh, And it was an OO vowel on an A natural. And I have always had an instrument that could sing down into the lower register easily. Like I never had to work for that. It just happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And I could do a couple of things on this A natural. I could either sing it in a way that sounded like it had no guts in it whatsoever. And it was a little bit fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Or I could do what I knew was wrong um, and over register it. I was essentially in a belt, but I could round it enough that to somebody whose ears were lesser than Lori Beatty's um, would totally sound good. And people would be like, yes, that. And I had been in coachings over and over and over with multiple voice coaches. And I kept saying, there's something wrong with this. Like I can either do it this way and I would sing it or that way. And they would be like, yes, do that. That's right. And I'm like, in my brain, I'm like, okay, because, you know, I'm Jamie Rhodes, and I'm Southern, and I'm like, oh, yes, okay, great. But in the back of my head, I'm like, that, I know that's not right. right. I know that's not right because I'm stuck. I know I can make a sound on that note, but I'm having to make it happen. And if I had to stay there, I would crack. Like, there's no way I can take that up or down. Oh. I'm going to have to change something. Yeah. Um, and one of our very first lessons, I sang the opening of that aria Um And I remember her saying, stop, do you always sing it like that? And I was like, it's wrong, isn't it? She was like, yes, why do you sing it like that? And I'm like, because that's the only sound I can make that people are telling me is right. And it was like, oh, yeah, Um, there's got to be a different way. And she was like, no, 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 no. And I was like, well, what about this way? And I was like, which was the other option. She was like, that's wrong, too. I was like, okay, great. great. (laughs) started working with me on um, the right registration in my middle voice and actually being able to support a sound there. And when I had come to her, as all good students tend to do, I basically told her what she needed to do with me. Cause she, I was like, well, here's what's wrong. My high G doesn't work and my top is getting less and less secure. And I'm sure she was the way I am now with my own students. <laughs> Great, i glad you know what you need to work on, right? Yes, your heart, thank you. Because I was like, this is what's wrong. And she was like, okay, here's what's wrong. This like fourth in the middle of your voice, it's what's wrong. Nothing is wrong with this. The problem is what you're doing right here. And she proceeded to spend the next like month or two teaching me how to mix and registrate the right way and resonate in that part of my voice. Yeah. Um, and miraculously, then my top was way easier. And I was like, oh, well, we fixed that and that, oh, Oh, okay. Um, which brings me kind of, that was my first kind of like light bulb moment with my own technique. But I'll tell you what it tells me about singing in general and what I end up teaching my students over and over and over. The first thing you hear or feel and identify as the problem is almost always the result of the problem, it's not the actual problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I was struggling getting into my talk. And that was the most pressing matter because that was the thing that was like, I mean, heaven forbid you crack a high note, right? Right. I mean, heaven forbid. Here's worse uh, here. Right. and So I thought, well, this is the, this is what's wrong. And it's like, no, 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 that's actually not what's wrong. It's this. And the same thing is true when um, I'm listening to an ensemble or when I'm working with my students, it very often they'll come to me and they'll be like, well, I sing out of tune in this part. So I need you to fix my intonation. It's like, well, guess what's not the problem? Your intonation. Your intonation is a result of what you're doing wrong. So let's back up and figure out what you're doing wrong. That's causing the problem. Right. Um, so I would say that's kind of the first big lesson that I learned um, to kind of back up underneath where your brain goes, mayday, mayday, and right. figure out what the actual issue is. And
0: that that realizing that you're hearing a symptom, not a problem. Almost if, always. If, if you think about it metaphorically as a doctor, <laughs> the mm-hmm. doctor ask what your symptoms are. Yeah. So they can figure out what's wrong. Right. They don't ask you what's wrong because right. you don't know. Yeah, so.
1: it's that thing I always talk about when it comes to Band-Aid instruction. If you're looking at the symptoms, you're only going to give Band-Aid, res- like Band-Aid uh, fixes. Yeah. And nobody's interested in a Band-Aid if you have cancer.
0: <laughs> right. Do you yeah, like you do want mask.
1: medicine <laughs> for the swelling or medicine for right. the pain. I mean, you might. That might be helpful. But what you ultimately want is to get rid of the problem.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So that's where, that's that's the kind of teacher I've become because that's the teacher I was sort of trained to be when I was learning about my own instrument and about the science, which at the same time that I was learning these lessons, that's just one example of many times Lori Beatty taught me to back up and like, oh, you know why that doesn't feel good? Because you did not take one single, you moved nothing when you took a breath. Your body <laughs> is in no way prepared to support you, hence why you feel undersupported. You <laughs> up, you know? I
0: wonder why that is. That's so I wonder good.
1: why that is. So, I mean, that's one of many ways that she kind of hammered that lesson home for me as a student, yeah. whether she realized that's what she was teaching me or not, that's what she taught me and thank goodness she did. Um, yeah. And then simultaneously, I was putting together the pieces of the anatomy and the physiology in my voice science and pedagogy classes. So I really was learning the elements of the science that you have to build on in order to kind of get back to the real issue at hand. Yeah. And
0: so, so the next follow-up question would be, what do you feel like if, again, you obviously can't condense your entire vocal pedagogy course into this short interview, but if you had to give, again, like probably the top two or three, um, Band aid that you band fixins that you hear most often.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think are those top three that educators like myself, whether at a public school, in a community choir, or at a university level, are doing that we could fix to really solve the problem?
1: I would say there's there's one major one, and then a few that are kind of like either symptoms of that one or kind of extraneous things that you do because you think it's helping you, but because there's a miscommunication, it's not actually helping you. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first one, um, and probably the primary one that I get with my students is they come to me trying to make a sound rather than create a sound, if that makes sense, like they're singing for an aesthetic. And the most obvious way that manifests itself is that they come to me singing a warm tall vowel rather than a vowel through a tall space that gives you warmth Mm -hmm. Um, and I find that that's what um, my music educator colleagues end up doing whether they mean to or not they end up asking for a warm tall sound rather than giving their their students the tools to create a sound that has space in it that is therefore warm. Right. And so my students are singing their version of a warm ah, which is gonna be oh, or oh, or some version of um, the best kind of mimicking of the sound that their choral conductor sang at them that they can come up with, right? right. And so they come to me singing aw oh, and um, instead of E, they sing uh, yeah. or they sing because they're pursuing this kind of warmth and they're pursuing, um, what to them feels like space. Right. Um, and so I would say the top one is that um, the thing you can really help yourself with and also help your students with is giving them more tools to create the sound that you're after rather than telling them to make the sound. And just kind of harping on it until you get the sound that you want without kind of saying, okay, this is the way you make that sound. Because if you don't, then they end up coming to me and they're singing, oh, and all of that is a darkened sound with their tongue kind of back inside the tube of their instrument and inevitably that's going to lead to more problems because you're flowing down the air you're plugging the tube of the instrument so they might be singing a sound that's warmer and something that is more attractive in that capacity but it's also going to be out of tune um, especially in certain parts of their range
0: sure yeah and it's the main one like a synthetic version of it instead of like a genuine organic version of the sound.
1: Um, And the things that I would say you might want to watch with that is dropping the jaw is um, one of the quickest ways teachers get to um, length and depth in a sound. Um, But that can be almost as sabotaging as it can be helpful. um, I would say you want to give your students permission to give give themselves space between their teeth and have their jaw released, but there's a difference between a released jaw and an open jaw Um, and dropping their jaw way down doesn't ensure you that they're gonna make a space inside their mouth that's actually open. Like they can drop the front of the jaw way down and the back of their throat can still be closed and the palate can be down and the jaw can be tied in the back. But in the front, they're singing that quintessential a ah vowel with two or three fingers worth of space between their teeth. And it's like, well, good job. There's no way that's going to be in tune because you've slowed the air down. Um, so I would uh, teach them and yourself to listen for and hear real vowels that they're making with their tongue, which usually they're going to make real vowels if they speak so if they go E, A, ah, and most of the time when I have my students speak a real vowel for me in the studio for the first time, they can't do it. Like they cannot bring yeah. themselves That's to say, so like, they'll go, I'll go, no, 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 no. You're singing, uh, say E and they'll go, uh. I'm like, no, 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 that is not the, the vowel that you would say for me if we weren't in a voice lesson. Let's but go get
0: pizza. like, yeah. They're like, <laughs> uh.
1: Oh, I'm like, you would never say that in a conversation with me. But because we're in a voice lesson, you think the right version of E is the one you sing rather than the one you speak and almost across the board. uh, With the exception of ooh, people do not know how to say ooh. But with the exception of ooh, almost across the board, the vowel that they speak is right. What's wrong with it for singing is the space they have around the vowel. So -hmm. if you can actually get them to say, beat seat feet like that's the vowel e and then the job is to open the space around that vowel without precluding the vowel itself if they move their tongue and they start singing instead of e right closing their space
0: yeah the the and that reminds me of the interest session you did with Andy Crane at the mm-hmm. Western A C D A when you talk about and the the podcast you just did with Chris Muntz about, you know, your the metaphor of the voice is a trumpet
1: mm-hmm. and
0: you can fix the bell of the trumpet all you want, but mm-hmm. if the tube is crushed, you're not gonna fix that sound. Exactly. So keeping the the I like to think of it like a filter, like a color filter right. almost. Like right the filter is the space, but you change okay. the image all you want with the, the all right. being natural. So, and I think that that's, that's really interesting because in my experience, so maybe you can address this too. I don't even, I, this is not prepared. So I'm just winging this question, <laughs> but it makes me think Like I was just my rehearsal this very day when I asked my, my advanced chamber singers to sing like an eval or something. Mm -hmm. Um, My men do a completely weird, different, random thing than the ladies do. Mm -hmm. How much of that is like developmental or how much of that is like their perceived, how do they do it all together? I don't understand (laughs) how my men all have this real dark color and my Uh ladies all have this real bright, shallow color. Uh And it's clearly something I've done because I've taught them <laughs> since seventh grade. <laughs> like, But, you know, what are, I guess, to broaden the question then, mm-hmm. are there differences between the male anatomy versus the female anatomy and the voice that would create those maybe inherent issues, or are there not?
1: Um. Yes and no. Uh, the bass uh, instrument itself, which is essentially a vibrator, and a resonating tube right with um the the air source being the lungs right yeah that like your sopranos and altos versus your tenors and baritones they all have the same tube made the same way there's a vibrator and a tube um, right. and the way they control that tube is exactly the same um, where they sing in the register however and what registration they use is different now to keep the tube open for a high soprano versus to keep the tube open for a baritone if you're talking about that whole analogy of the voice as a um uh, a wind instrument which to liken back to your question if your tone in your men is completely different and the vowel is completely different than the tone and the vowel in the women then there's a discrepancy in the space in the tubes in this group of singers versus this group of singers. Um, So (laughs) when I hear that sound, my brain goes, okay, well, what I need to do is shape the tubes the same way, Mm -hmm. not create the same sound. So, and know that every single one of those singers, now the tube and the vibrator and all the things that they're using to move that tube, it's hooked to a different brain right? There's a different brain and there's a different learner hooked to every single instrument. Right. But the instrument itself works the same. They all have the same uh, musculature that is closing and opening and shaping that tube, right? right. Uh, they might be singing in a different registration. So what it feels like for them when they're singing an e-vowel in a heavy mechanism versus what it feels like when you're you know, your altos are trying to sing in their upper middle voice. So they're more in a head voice versus your sopranos who are trying to sing in their passaggio. Um, Those are different registrational things. So it's going to feel different, but what they need to actively do as in put your right foot here to get those tubes open and to get your tone and your vowel consistent across the ensemble is all the same thing. They all must start with an open tube, all of them. They all must release their abs and take a breath that opens their body. Yeah and opens their tube at the same time. Yeah. If they all do that and then with their tongue, they sing E, not oo, not E, right? Yeah. If yeah. they start the instrument the same way, they all open the tube, they sing the same vowel with their tongue, and you watch them like a hawk. If they if half of them are here.
0: Right, right, Their chin
1: is jutting forward and their head's in front of their body. But half of them have their head back but their chin up. Like there are lots of visual cues that you as the teacher or the person on the podium can catch just by looking at them. That's going to say, okay, well, that's going to be a different sound than that one.
0: Right. Like,
1: they all should have a pretty neutral mouth position. It shouldn't be super spread. None of them should have a super drop, dropped jaw unless they're like, you know, off the staff somewhere either way below it or way on top of it um they should all look pretty neutral nobody should look like they're working they should all have pretty much the same basic head balance um and they should all be singing e and they should all do the same kind of you've heard me talk about prep before they sing and if they don't you're not going to get the same tone
0: yeah and i think that Everything that's just the was the funniest thing about listening to that intro session was like everything you're saying is like so obvious sounding, but it really actually is oh, such a paradigm shift at the same yeah. time because it, you're right i I'm thinking okay, but men are the men are doing something, and I'm just like pff, micromanaging the electronics of the vehicle instead of realizing, well, it just didn't fill up with gas like yeah.
1: <laughs> you like, know. It's- <laughs> there it's all it's what i tell my pedagogy students when they're in my pedagogy classes they're they're graduate students and they're studying vocal pedagogy they're studying to be um people who train voices and inevitably and i remember being the same way as a young teacher i remember thinking please don't give me a tenor Like, I have no idea what to do with that. Like, what do I do? I'm a mezzo. What do I do with a tenor? And inevitably my, my singers are the same way or my students rather are the same way they come in and they're like Dr. Rhodes. I feel like I could do okay with another soprano, but what do I do with a baritone? Like, I don't even know. And it's like, what do you do do with a baritone? Stop teaching a baritone, teach a human.
0: Yeah.
1: And I get that questions from other teachers. A lot of times, like I'll have, um colleagues that ask me like oh well how do you teach your baritones and i'm like well the same way i teach every other throat that walks into my office i teach them to breathe and open the throat and i teach them to be in control of the shape that they're making i teach them to sing to sing real vowels. i teach them to sing with a supported sound i teach them to not over pressurize their breath to use enough air that's that's consistent across every voice type like find one that says any of those things is a bad thing to pursue right and
0: i feel like that's 90 percent of the battle It because, is because each voice because I, I i guess then that that really does answer my question because then you're right it's a registration issue between the different parts right. even within myself like my passaggio is in a different place every freaking day
1: it feels like that, I'm sure, yeah.
0: Oh my gosh, what am I, I get this feels way different today because it's more humid outside or right. whatever. Like every day is this great right. battle. Well,
1: but here is the thing, I'll tell you this story. This is something that um, one of my colleagues at ECU, who is also a fantastic voice teacher, her name is Nicole Franklin. Um, and she studied, she did her degree at um, Rice with another amazing pedagogue named Joyce Farwell. Um, and she, like myself, um, is one of the singers in our business who had to build their instrument. Like there are some people who are just gifted and they come out of the womb sounding like that. And it's kind of like, in some ways that's a gift because it's like, that's amazing. But in other ways, it's it's a little bit to their detriment because sometimes they don't, because they don't have to go through the process. They never all the way figure out how they're doing what they're doing. And so when it doesn't work, they're kind of like, Whoa, what happened? Um, They don't know how to
0: teach it often.
1: She was very much like me in that she had to build her instrument. And a lot of what she does as a teacher is based on the fact that she went through the process herself. And there's an understanding that comes with that. But she tells this story about how, Um, she was in a lesson with Joyce Farwell in, in, I think maybe one of her first, um, like her first year with Joyce and she'd been singing for a little while and she was, she was trying to go up into her top and she would do this thing every single time and her voice would crack. And she was saying, why is it doing that? Like, why does it do that? And Dr. Farwell was like, well, it's not doing anything. You're doing it. Yeah. You're doing it. And that's one of the big lessons that we as teachers of voice and we as singers have to realize. It's really easy, especially with the instrument, because it's something that you can't see every part of it. Like you can't see all the buttons like you can on a bassoon. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, you can't see all of it. And because a lot of us come to the understanding of how to use our voice through a lot of instruction that is vague. And right. frankly, look, to be real honest, like, even as somebody who teaches in what I would consider to be a pretty, like put your right foot here, put your left foot here kind of way, because so much of what my students are trying to move and shift in their body is not immediately in their control when they first come to see me. Like I have to teach them how to find some of those muscles through sensation. And then they learn what that sensation is and then they gain the control over it and how to move it. But because so much of what we learn about this instrument is very kind of vague. It's easy to feel like I don't know why it did that. Like why did it do that? And it's like no, 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 no. It is you.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. You did it, it. And yeah. so it's kind of like when when my students come in and they're like, I mean, assuming they're not ill,
0: right? right? Sure. We're just gonna
1: we'll say that they're healthy. Um, if they're not unwell and they come in and they're like, my top isn't working. It's like no if your top was working yesterday, but it's not working today, it means you were doing something yesterday that you're not doing today.
0: You're not working your top well.
1: Right. Right, right, right. So there's something about the ownership of the fact that this instrument that we have that is encased inside of us and seems like this untouchable thing is really under our control. And the more we learn about how to use it, and the more we take responsibility for it, the more control we actually have over it. And we're so much less likely to be like, why did that sound come out? No, no, no. It's not why did that sound come out? It's what did I do different that time? Yeah. In a good way, in a bad way. Like when my students figure out something that goes, well, like the first thing I ask is, what did you feel? What was that? Explain what you did because yeah. I need them to be able to articulate, not just to me, but to themselves, they did because I need them to do the process again. If you watch um, some of these like amazing masterclasses that Joycey Donato does kind of across the board um, uh, in all these various places where she works with these singers, one of the things that she preaches, and I could not agree with her more, don't try to recreate the sound that you got that was good. Mm
0: -hmm. You go
1: back through the process. You don't like, you don't like something good happens and then you chase that good thing every time. It's like, no, 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 no. You go through a process, you breathe, you open the throat, you sing a vowel, you resonate, and a sound comes out. And if it's a great sound, you don't then try to make that sound again. No, 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 no. You back up. What did I do? I yeah. took a breath, I opened the throat, I created the pro you you do the process over and over. Step step. And that's how my students learn to sing because I don't teach them, they teach themselves in the practice rooms.
0: Which is coming from someone who's I grew up an athlete, like I played Two or three sports at once. So mm-hmm. my dad was harping on me every day. I shot hundreds of free throws every day. Right, and right. The same thing. Like you're not trying to make it every time. You you're putting put your elbow in the same spot. Your elbow's in. Yeah, just relax. That right. You, it's the same thing. So why should it be any different when right. it's still and
1: we my- don't think about it with this. And there's so many ways that we actually can think about it with this instrument even though we can't see all the parts like if you just focus on never trying to make a sound before you have found what i call tall neck for anybody who's ever seen me do a presentation or seen me work in any capacity what i call a tall neck which is a balanced head over the body if you just start with that and you always take an energized breath in a like in a way that you hear the air come in through a tube that is not constricted, not kind of a gaspy breath, but right. not a super slow, totally silent breath, a breath that says, hey, I'm about to siren. And if you let your students siren, like if they do one of those, like, whoa, you'll hear them. They all go, oh.
0: but yeah.
1: if they're about to sing, they don't do that. You hear nothing, right?
0: It's not it's allowed. It's yeah, not allowed. exactly. Yeah, that's such so a.
1: You always start with alignment, and they always take a breath. Like that's that's. I mean, it, you could liken that back to relax your like your your elbow needs to be here, relax your wrist, yeah, like totally. And if you don't do one of those two things, inevitably the result that you get with that ball is not going to be what you want. And if it goes in,
0: you better somebody
1: look. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, because it won't happen the next.
1: Between, just exactly. like
0: my high notes, like. Mm-hmm.
1: There's a difference between luck and technique Um, and you never want technique to feel cold or, I mean, technique is a process and it's something that you pursue when you're in the practice room or in the rehearsal to create habits so that your body responds to what your brain tells it in a certain way. Ideally you don't want your singers on stage thinking about all the technical things. By the time they're on the stage, You want them singing and performing, right? Right. Um, The technique should never take the joy out of performing. It should free you up to have more joy in it. Um, And what I have found is that the more band-aids we put on things, the less joy we actually have, both from a conductor standpoint or a teacher standpoint and a performer standpoint, because you're so busy trying to make sure that they do this here or they do this here or you, or you do this here or this here. Whereas when, by the time I walk on stage with my singers in my ensemble, or my students walk on stage, or I myself walk on stage to sing, regardless of how nervous I am, or how, even if I'm like not in my best voice, like let's say I'm just blatantly exhausted, but I've done enough singing to know that, okay, my folds are gonna vibrate. Like, this is not gonna be the easiest singing I've ever done, um, but th- it's gonna function. Yeah. However, I cannot cheat. I cannot go out there and just throw away all the control because if I do, I'm screwed. Right. What I can do is walk out there and not sabotage myself more than I'm already sabotaged. I can walk out there and make sure my throat is open via just at the very least alignment functioning. Right. I can make sure that I don't open my mouth to make a sound before I've actually taken a breath. I can make sure that I actually sing a vowel and my choir is the same way we walk out there and I'm not telling them, be careful of this note. Like, remember this, I literally am like, like in the opening introduction to whatever I'm doing, I'm usually making faces at them because I need them focused on me and not their weirdness. Um, But the, the audience might be looking at my back, but I am saying, I'm saying breathe up, real vowel. I'm putting my hand on my face to just remind them to breathe and to do it into a tall space. I'm not like standing there looking pretty at them, hoping my hands look good. I'm giving them, I'm reminding them of the base tools that they need to make a good sound.
0: Yeah, that's great. So my last question, I could could go on for days and I have so many other questions but let I would love to have you back again in a couple months or whatever but my last question is let's say you know what what do you feel like and this may sound fairly obvious but in terms of changing this is changing the subject but changing from time period or style to style what do you feel if you're trying to change the aesthetic how do, you do, how do you do that without changing that, those kind of fundamentals?
1: Yeah. Um, well, the thing you don't do is change uh, the breath or mm. change the tube. You have to turn on the car. That's an analogy that I use with my students. If I don't hear the car crank, i.e., if I don't hear 45 women in my choir, I happen to teach a treble ensemble, um, go, <sighs> at the same time in an energized free throat way, um, then the car hasn't turned on, meaning they haven't actually activated the instrument. Um, And they're going to push to get the air through it if they don't do that. So you don't change that, whether you're singing pianissimo and totally straight tone, uh, for a Renaissance piece, or whether you're singing full voice for your Puccini aria, like, you do not change that. And it needs to look and feel the same across the board. And I would say the same is true if I am, you know, belting wicked or something like my option is never don't actually turn on the car. If I don't do that, I'm already compromised. And however I pursue any style that I'm going to sing is then going to be compromised both from a vocal health standpoint, but more, I mean, I hate to say more importantly, but more importantly, from a flexibility standpoint. like If I don't start it by making sure that my head isn't sabotaging myself and my throat's already open and I'm not grabbing with those muscles and I'm turning on the car, if I don't start there, then I mean, I'm already uh, in a situation to get tired faster. Um, I'm gonna be limited in what dynamic I can sing. Mm. Uh, If I do that though, regardless of how much vibrato I'm ultimately using or, well, there's always vibrato, but how, how obvious that vibrato is or not, or what registration I'm using, whether I'm singing in a musical theater style, whether I'm singing an operatic style or whether I'm singing, um, in, a in a much more, um, in a much lighter registration for whatever reason. Right. Sure. Regardless of any of those things. Um, if I haven't started that, I'm not, going to be able to sing as musically as I want to, like I lose the colors and there should be flexibility and colors and varying dynamics, regardless of what style you're singing. Right. And the only way you get that is by keeping the trumpet not squished. Right. And making sure that you're always feeding air through it. So the way I get different colors is the same way I I get different color vowels. Mm -hmm. Um, If I want a sound that is more forward and wider um, or brighter rather, I'm probably going to widen the tube more laterally. If I want a sound that is deeper and taller, I'm going to take the shape of the tube and I'm going to make it more vertical, right? Um, If I am singing uh, in um, uh, like the registration I use for Carmen as a mezzo which I'm going to use a pretty decently heavy registration might be really similar to the same thing I do in my lower register in a musical theater piece but the shape of my tube is going to be totally different. Yeah. If that makes any sense at all.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Um, and then what I do with the vibrato is going to be different and my ability to control the vibrato without squeezing my muscles again, um, is dependent upon whether or not I start with a breath and an open throat. If I don't do that, then my only option to control vibrato, either add it, uh, make it more obvious. Maybe I should say make it more obvious or make it less obvious. Um, going to be by squeezing the throat or pressing on the airstream neither of which is helpful
0: yeah yeah that's yeah that's gold and i think that there's so many things that obviously again when you would if you would study that and go really into depth of detail of how do you do that that comes from each person listening taking the time to just do it just like You got to experiment. I got way better at singing when I just started making weird freaking noises. Oh, for sure. And trying to sing because I, I started to gain those an understanding of those sensations. Yeah. But but that paradigm shift between like, you're not, when you sing musical theater versus, I have so many students who do musical theater and choir. Right. But some of my students, a, a actually large amount of them want to do classical singing and musical theater singing. And so- yeah we have this understanding myself included that belt is like a completely other world when it's like, no, you, you, it is all the same foundation. Right. And and that's,
1: well, that's the key word right there. It has to be the foundation of how you're making the sound, not just the foundation in this kind of vague philosophical way, but the foundation in that what you do before you sing has to be concrete every single time. You must breathe meaning your body must release yeah. so that the diaphragm can drop. Those ab muscles have gotten out of your way. Diaphragm can drop. Ribs can expand. That needs to happen whether you're singing an opera aria, whether you're singing a Monteverdi, uh, like ensemble piece or right. whether you're out to belt, like you must start there and you must start with your throat not compromised via your alignment. Like you have to start there. letting go of your jaw is another like given. You need to do that. Like those are kind of like the base things that open the throat and turn on the car. And then you can legitimately from there play with it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, I won't do it now because there's no telling what it will do with your speakers. But (laughs) when I teach registration in my um, pedagogy classes, specifically in my undergrad pedagogy class, um, I, because I have to do it in a quick way with them, because you kind of have to crab all these things into like one semester with my undergrads. Um, but I basically explain it to them in like four minutes, and then I model it so they can see it. Yeah. Um, and you can legitimately sing like they'll watch me um, sing like an a vowel or an e vowel or just random vowel in a classical way in a classical registration. Um, but I'll stop and breathe and start singing the vowel and I will change the shape of my tube multiple ways. And they will hear that off shift from a classical sound to an ensemble sound. That's totally straight tone to uh, a bright belt sound. And all they will see is me changing the shape of the tube. They don't see my body change, but they hear my registration change. They hear the sound change um, yeah. and I make a point to show them that the way I'm initiating it is this. And then I start in like a classical a vowel, just like I might sing in my Brahms song. And sure. then by only changing the shape of the tube, I can like crescendo, decrescendo. I can make it totally straight tone. I can bring the vibrato back into it. I can make it sound like a belt all of a sudden. I can pull almost all of the chest voice out of it and make it sound like a super pure like thing all in one breath. And it's kind of like, do you see me doing crazy different things with that instrument? No, no. I'm literally only changing the shape of the tube.
0: And they're all healthy. Like- And that's the thing too, is
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I tend to portray like classical singing is the only healthy singing, which is not true, but just because I have to, but, but again, it is, you can sing all of those ways in a really healthy way. And I think in terms of this podcast being specifically early music Monday, I think that's kind of the main crux is we go for that really thin, Mm -hmm. straight tone. I actually don't like that word because it, it just makes me tense thinking about it.
1: Exactly. And it's also not true. Like there's no such thing as a straight tone. Sound is vibration. Yeah. So if you put the straightest of straight tones into, you know, a synthesizer, you're going to see that it vibrates. It's just the rate of vibrato that is faster or smaller than, you know, when you hear somebody sing Mozart, for instance.
0: Right. And making sure that the foundation is still the same. The resonance is like the the lift is there so that way then we can mess with colors all day.
1: I tell my altos in choir all the time to breathe like they are about to sing their high note in their aria. Yeah. And then sing their alto note because I need an open throat and a breath and support in their body under the choral sound that they're giving me. And they're giving me a choral sound, but they're not doing it with this. And so it's kind of like, okay, I need you to still look, I need you to look exactly the same, whether you're about to sing your fortissimo high note um, or about to sing, you know, your second soprano part in this motet, or you're about to sing, um, you know, the, the, I don't know, insert random musical theater, (laughs) (laughs) It's the same when you start.
0: Yeah. And I think that's probably the crux of, for me, that paradigm shift seems obvious, but is actually fairly significant. Right. So being able to then go and say, okay, well, let me experiment. From what you've said, I would say my takeaway, if I'm an educator who's like, okay, I really got to figure this crap out, Right. is I would go and I would just sing in my office after everyone leaves or just like make noises and record myself and try to like be my own teacher as if I'm one of my students.
1: Look in the mirror. Got it. Stare in the mirror. You will do so many things. Like, I mean, we're great at listening and listening can be really helpful uh, when it comes to getting feedback for ourselves. We're great at listening. We're great at feeling Um, but having that third bit of sensory information of just looking at the mirror, you will so sabotage yourself without knowing it. And just kind of watching in that mirror also can tell you what, what you should be seeing from them. Like when it hurts or when it like, you're like, I'm like, well, that, that was a fail, right? (laughs) There's a lot of times that you're going to see yourself do things in the mirror. And it's kind of like, okay, I mean, I actively, learned what release jaw actually looked like on the outside by doing it myself and looking in the mirror and going, Oh, well, you can actually see that. Like, you can actually, you can see that because I mean, I thought, well, that's way inside my mouth. It's not my jaw drop that's happening. It's my jaw release. But I was like, Oh wait, you can actively see, yeah. that and at the point I'm at the point now where I mean I can hear it when they breathe now at this point um, yeah. like I can tell whether their jaw is released when I hear them inhale right Yeah. Um, but they will almost always now I can be explaining released jaw and I'll see them they'll find it and I'll go that's it Yeah. That right and had I not been staring at the mirror playing around with it myself you get those cues those visual cues and you're like oh that's what right. that looks like Oh, oh, when I breathe, oh, that's how that moves. Oh, okay. Um, Not that every single one of your students is going to move exactly the same way you do, but just the information of like, oh, then that's more clear, direct, not picture yourself in a field of daisies and think blue information that you can give your students when it comes to getting the sound that you're working towards where they're concerned.
0: Actual concrete instruction versus that.
1: Concrete instruction. Put your finger here, do you feel this? Yeah. Put, like, look at me, do you see this? Look at you, do you see that you look nothing like that?
0: <laughs> right.
1: Change that, you know. Yeah. Um, the more concrete information and concrete, what I'll call monitors you can give them, mm. whether it's put your hand, I mean, I see choral directors, here's one more like little thing to like just adjust. Sure. for Choral yeah. conductors across the world and voice teachers, I mean, I've seen voice teachers do it too um monitors like we'll have them in the warm-up they'll monitor expansion and inevitably they'll have their hands way down here to monitor meaning they'll have their hands like near their waist expecting to feel expansion and it's like you know that's not where their ribs are going to expand actually their lungs aren't down there their lungs aren't down there so if you're going to have them monitor for expansion which you might want to teach them to feel some of that expansion i mean i wouldn't go crazy overboard with it Um, but get them to, to own the fact that their upper body should expand, right? When they breathe and let them monitor there. Don't have their hands near their navel. If you're expecting them to feel rib expansion, like have their hands on their ribs. Um, you might have one hand on their, on their belly so that they can feel when they let go of those ab muscles before they breathe. Like that might be a good idea. Um, but anytime I can give them some kind of concrete thing to monitor, whether it is aside from listen for and feel the following, like those are great, but those are also not as trustworthy as did you see X move to here? Yeah. Uh, so if you can see or feel it like actively feel it with like tactile, feel it. If you can give them those two monitors, give them to them even if you put them in like an ensemble setting and you put them in groups of two and they're staring at each other i mean that's the beautiful thing about having an um a voiceless and almost always there's a mirror and i'm having them look at themselves in the mirror but have them be each other's mirror
0: yeah and totally. the,
1: the minute that they start to see their colleague raise their chin they give them a sign or something Yeah, um, that's a good idea. You know, there's all kinds of different things that you can help them have concrete things that they're monitoring for themselves, and also make them more aware of it with each other. And then all of a sudden, you're building individual responsibility and ensemble responsibility. Mm. Yes, and giving them tools. Where right. at the end of the year, if they master a handful of those things, concrete things that they can monitor for, they're better singers.
0: Yeah, and they can monitor themselves, like you and said. And they really-
1: can monitor themselves, and you can build on it. And all of a sudden, those are tools that you can use across your repertoire right. and build on throughout the year, and not just like a Band-Aid that works for this piece or for this piece. Right, yeah,
0: because that, yeah, that's a trap for sure. Well, thank you. That we, We've gone on and could go on. I, I feel... I feel very, very strongly about healthy singing because I I failed my pre-recital hearing in my undergrad. And my my voice jury said, we just, when you get to the high notes, we're not really sure what's gonna happen. I said, well, me neither.
1: Me neither, <laughs> I know the feeling.
0: <laughs> so, like, yeah. so, so because of that, and as I've learned more about how to sing, it's become one of my yeah kind of jihads because it's, Something I struggled with for yeah. so long. So thank you so much for coming on. And
1: I would say, um, if you can shift the the thought process from um, pursuing healthy singing, which is always a goal. I mean, ideally, we're always pursuing healthy singing, but pursue healthy singing via smart, knowledgeable, responsible singing. Mm. Know that the way to get to a healthy sound in whatever. Whatever style you're pursuing, the way to get to healthy is always by knowing and understanding what you're trying to do and being um, thoughtful about the process you're using to get there every single time. Cause that's what gets you to healthy. It's when there are question marks in the process right. or question marks in the responsibility of, okay, well, if I move my right foot here, this happens. And if I move my left foot here, then this happens. If those aren't clear, then healthy singing, it can also become like kind of a quintessential blanket. Right. Sing healthy, What does that mean?
0: Yeah. didn't explain the process. Yeah,
1: yeah. exactly. So process of singing, Mm. so that you can monitor health.
0: All right, for our composer profile today, we're gonna talk about Claudio Monteverdi. Now Monteverdi, is perhaps one of the most high profile composers of the late renaissance and he's m- high profile for a couple of reasons the first reason is because of his station in venice at the cathedral of st mark another reason is because he, because of the layout of that cathedral he kind of carried on the tradition of the double choir or multiple choir kind of antiphonal singing. And then from his transitioning into from the Renaissance into the Baroque period, kind of the early Baroque, he was the first one through the wall, so to speak. So there's a movie called Moneyball that I love, and it's about the Oakland A's baseball team. If you're not familiar with the movie, it's based on real events, Brad Pitt plays Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's. The general manager is in charge of buying and selling and trading players. Um, and he kind of reimagined how that was done in the sport of baseball. He started to use algorithms and math. And instead of just you know, baseball scouts who would go out to the minor leagues and colleges and kind of watch players and have scouting reports, he would compile those into these algorithms and try to build the team based on numbers. And anyway, it, it sort of worked, sort of not, but it's changed the game of baseball. If you watch baseball now, they're all into these metrics. And there's a really interesting line he gets interviewed and kind of headhunted at the end of the season by the owner of the Boston Red Sox. And the, the owner says, anybody who's not breaking down their team right now and rebuilding it based on your model, they're dinosaurs. And, I mean, Billy Bean was raked over the coals in... Sports commentators and sports news, like, everyone was, like, crucifying him for this and saying how much it wouldn't work and how terrible it was and all this stuff. And the owner of the Red Sox says, the first one through the wall always gets bloody. But that then opens the floodgates for more people to follow. So Monteverdi was similar in some respects. Because some of the more complex harmonic structures he was using, his more systematic use of the 7th chord, for example, was really starting to completely establish tonality. Um, he had much more complex rhythms, including like restative style, more dramatic and overt text painting, metric ambiguity, and more conjunct melodic line. Like, those types of things made him relatively unpopular to a certain amount of music critics. But while a lot of his contemporaries were frantically trying to follow, because they saw he was leading the way. Um, similar to Billy Bean uh, with Moneyball. So if you haven't seen that movie, go check it out, if you're a sports fan. Even if you're not, I mean... My mom and my my best friend, Aaron Paglisi, they hate baseball and they love that movie. So it's, uh, it's worth checking out. So his more going on from there with some of his compositional techniques, his sacred style is much more conservative than his secular style. So thinking of his secular style, a really good illustrator of his madrigals is Eric Whitaker's... Leonardo Dreams of his flying machine. Dr. Ronald Staley at BYU coupled uh Monteverdi Madrigal right next to Leonardo Dreams in a concert program because that piece is an Italian madrigal. Eric Whitaker's piece is. And but just with contemporary harmonies. But the way he paints the text, the way he goes from one textual idea to another textual idea, changing textures and harmonies and melodies and all that stuff is so indicative and representative of the secunda practica that Monteverdi kind of pioneered. The basso continuo in those madrigals is also something that Monteverdi kind of uh, that Monteverdi pioneered as well. So you can see this stylistic shift really distinctly between the first four books of Madrigals, because he has nine, and then the second five books of Madrigals. And they're all written for a variety of voicings and accompaniments or no accompaniments, but they're all really indicative of those of him like bridging the gap and kind of pushing through the wall to be the first one through the wall into uh, baroque style. So for a beginning piece, and I could go on and on about Monteverdi. His his history is really fascinating, and his appointments were really uh, high profile and prestigious, and he lived a really great life and had a great. And in his his career, he put out a lot of great music and was really successful in his time and after, which is relatively rare as well. So, but we don't have time for that. I'll let you go and research some of Monteverdi uh, and some of those fascinating things. But again, a beginning piece. You could take several of his solo pieces and maybe add a couple of little harmonies to it to be for like a children's choir or a 7th grade choir 6th, 7th grade choir, middle school. So one of them is Amarilli Miabella. This piece is really well known to people who have taken voice in college because it's in the 24 Italian Art Songs and Aria's book. And it's great, and it would be awesome to to do with the children's chorus I'm all about unison singing and teaching singing in that unison st- stuff it, it can really spend time focusing on tone no matter what age they're in that unison singing to create that unison sound is really tricky but it lets you get some of the really complicated harmonies out of their way so you can just focus on the voice if, you, if you're looking for three-part music, another th- like set of songs that would be good for beginning choirs is a collection of three-part canzonetta a tre voci. So they're all for three parts. One example is Son Questri e Crespi Crini. Again, these are all Italian names, so they're, if, if you're like, what the heck... Did you just say my pronunciation is not that great. The all of these resources can be found on the on the Sound of Ages website. But this is for SAT, Soprano alto Tenor, and it's so doable by beginning choirs. The vocal lines are really distinct, so they don't have to worry about parallel thirds that are so freaking hard sometimes for beginning singers. The rhythms are independent and not very complicated, and there's not a lot of Italian It's because it's pretty short Um, and is so indicative, like, harmonically, melodically, textually, and texturally, very indicative of the time, so it would fit perfect uh, in a program trying to illustrate, you know, this time period but for any level choir. And in that collection, there are a wide variety of three-part pieces that you could do with any group. You could even have a trio of soloists do it in the middle of your program to kind of give the rest of the choir a break or to change up the color of the program. There's all kinds of possibilities of things you could do with those three-part consonettas. There are also several two-part pieces for tenor and bass, or soprano and alto, that are in collections. If all you do is go to CPDL, it's just like loads and loads of things. But there's so many that would work for in two parts as well. So an intermediate piece, I would say, is his uh Mesa de Capella a Quattro Voci four part mass a cappella mass of uh, 1641 is the date of that one he has two of them and they are written on different dates so it's a very simple four part texture simple rhythms simple polyphony not super dense not ov- overly crazy ranges the ranges stay pretty conservative it's a really great pe- like all f- all the movements are really Um, worth looking into and something that could be done by an intermediate level choir with great success. Another piece is Cantate Domino. Now this part's for six voices or this piece is for six voices. And even though that sounds kind of complicated at first, it's still pretty independent each part and the rhythms aren't, Insa- the, the ranges aren't insane it's really fun bouncy triple meter uh, feel makes it something that would be really fun with a kind of slow section in between kind of goes back and forth between fast and slow um, polyphonic sections with homophonic sections there are some these passages of parallel thirds that move kind of quickly but you can slow the tempo down a little bit to make it doable and not so coloratura. But it would be a great piece for a lar- larger ensemble as well as a smaller ensemble. And then for a difficult piece, um, uh, one example of a madrigal that's pretty representational of his Secunda Practica is the BATTO QUI pianci, PIANCE. It's for five parts. And it's originally supposed to be doubled in the continuo, but it could be done a cappella for practicality purposes. It's really rhythmically complex and has thick contrapuntal polyphony. It's a mouthful of Italian. It's really exciting and really fun. It would be more successful in terms of keeping it clean in a smaller ensemble as opposed to a larger ensemble and more advanced because the ranges are much wider and call for a little bit more virtuosic command of the technique. Um, Another piece that he's most famous for, maybe not most famous for, but pretty famous for, is his, his Vespers of 1615. And... You don't really want to do the whole thing as a concert unless you're doing it for a very specific reason, but different movements of it, and it requires a lot of vocal stamina. Just tons. Long lines, long phrases, extreme ranges, really expressive. I mean, there's lots of homophonic sections, but again, it's just its just a monster of a masterpiece. So that concludes our composer profile on Claudio Monteverdi. Thanks for joining us uh, on Early Music Monday today. Tone 2.0 and our discussion with Jamie Rhodes and our composer profile on Monteverdi. Be sure to like and subscribe on all of our platforms and we'll catch you next week on Early Music Monday.